Hi everyone, I'm Michael Whistler, and I sincerely believe that science fiction can help us save the world. On this episode, I get to talk to author Alec Nevla Lee, the author of a fantastic book called Astounding, uh, about the early days of science fiction and the uh, golden age, as it were, and ask him if it was really the golden age. So let's dive in. This is Exploring Tomorrow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Alec, for, for being on this episode. Um, I really enjoyed reading uh, your book, Astounding, uh, which is details the early days of uh, the development of science fiction. And, the, and it was first published as the pulps and the big influence of uh, John W. Campbell, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, Heinlein, Asimov, you know, it's all these big names that we associate with the uh, golden age of science fiction. Uh, and it's, it's a big, it's a big book. Uh, but, uh, and, and, you know, especially to cover all that history uh, could be, could seem so heady and, and challenging. Um, and yet uh, I was utterly sucked into it and just fascinated by the very human journey that these these people were on and how nuanced and complex uh, their lives uh, were. Uh, so thank you for writing such a fascinating book. Um, can tell me a little bit about how this project came about. Sure. Uh, well, thanks, uh, number one, for having me on. And uh, thank you for the kind words. I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, because I, I really was trying to write a book that could engage both the hardcore science fiction fans, but also um, casual fans or even ordinary readers who didn't really have an interest in science fiction, but enjoy literary biography or just learning about this very interesting subculture. Um, because going in, I actually didn't know much about it. Um, so the, the origins of the project come out of the fact that um, I, I kind of began as a short science fiction writer on, on the fiction side, and I've been writing for a magazine called Analog Science Fiction, in fact, um, for a long time now. I, I published about a dozen stories there um, over the past decade or so, and um, I, I, I love hard science fiction. I've been a fan, you know, for a long time, and my original um, idea was to write a book about the magazine. So I, I would, you know, acquire, you know, as you see behind me, uh, a lot of uh, back issues of uh, Astounding and uh, Analog, which was the, the name it, it, it acquired later on, and just read them all or as much as I could and just tell the story of how hard science fiction evolved in America through the lens of this one magazine, which would have been a pretty good book. I think it would have been a fun book to write. And, and I ended up doing a lot of that research anyway. But what I realized probably on day one of, you know, looking into this project was that there had never been a biography of John W. Campbell who was the editor of Astounding and Analog during its most famous period. And um, I'm still astonished by this fact that in all the years since Campbell died, um, no one had written his biography because he is a immensely complicated, interesting figure who is hugely important. You know, he, he almost single-handedly defined, you know, what science fiction was in America, you know, for decades. And, um, you know, his, his personal life was very interesting. And um, he was a, a flawed person in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, someone I, you know, immediately knew would make a fantastic subject for a big biography. 
And um, so, yeah, so I, I, I pitched the idea saying, you know, this guy deserves a book. And uh, my editor, who was not a huge science fiction fan, said, you know, she, she liked the idea, but she wasn't sure that Campbell was um, familiar enough to a mainstream audience to justify this kind of project. And she said, can you make it a group biography instead? Can, can we bring in three or four other people to kind of flesh out the um, the story a bit? And I said, well, you know, you look at Campbell and, and the names that come to mind are Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein and L. Ron Hubbard. Right. And she said, she said, that sounds great. Uh, because these are clearly famous figures. They are, you know, hugely influential um, and familiar uh, in, in mainstream pop culture. And they were friends. They, they were collaborators. They hung out together. You know, they're part of this circle of people. And so the book kind of became a portrait, not just of Campbell, even though he's still the central thread in the story, but also just this community, you know, of writers and fans who really, you know, define science fiction and modern fandom in ways that you can still see today. So, you know, the, the book got bigger, as you noted. Um, it, it was a very complex project. But, um, yeah, I, I'm really happy with how it turned out. As you should be. It's uh, it's quite an undertaking, but I can mm -hmm. understand that too of like wanting to bring in some of those uh, other figures. But I think it, it, it then rounds it out too into being this really the biography of the beginning of, of science fiction as we understand it today in a lot of ways. Uh, and interestingly enough, the sort of accidental or inadvertent biography of the formation of Scientology <laughs> in, right, the, right. in the process there as well. Uh, how familiar were you with all those sort of various aspects of uh, not just L. Ron Hubbard's life, but uh, Asimov's personal life and Heinlein's personal life uh, before diving into this? I was familiar with it in a very casual way, in the way that um, I think a fan who had read some of these authors uh, would be. Um, I, I knew Campbell mostly through Asimov's memoirs. So Asimov had published this huge two-volume uh, autobiography in the 70s that I still love. It's a great book. It's, it's very readable, and I read it years ago. And so, you know, his picture of Campbell is as a mentor, a very important figure for him. Um, and so I knew Campbell through that. I knew that Campbell had written uh, the novel at uh, Who Goes There, which was later uh, adapted into The Thing. Right. That's probably his most familiar contribution to popular culture. And I knew about the uh, Scientology connection uh, because he and Hubbard had been friends and Campbell figures in a very um, tangential way in, in most histories of Scientology. Okay, and, and I didn't know at that point and no one really had talked about how central he actually was to, you know, that process. So it was and at Heinlein, you know, I've read some of his novels, but I had not spent a lot of time thinking about him. So I think one advantage I had going into this book is that I was a fairly, you know, I, I like to think objective person. I, I didn't have a lot of, um, you know, personal opinions about these people, aside from my assumption, which ended up being correct, that they were important and interesting and worth taking seriously. So um, the book really evolved in response to the material I found. Um, no one had really looked at Campbell's letters in, in a systematic way before. And, you know, they're an, an amusing resource. Um, you know, no one had really written a book where, uh, you know, you, you tried to tease out not just Campbell's influence on science fiction, but also his personal life. So, you know, his he was a very interesting person um, that, uh, you know, I, I, again, like is sort of suited to this kind of project. So, you know, the book ended up being, I think, objective, um, but also very critical 
Um, I think some people are surprised to look at the, the cover and the title and they think it's a celebration of this period. And I think it is in some ways, you know, I, I still love hard science fiction. I love this period. I love, you know, a lot of the stuff that Campbell and these writers did, but, you know, they were all really messed up people. Um, and this is something that I did not go in. Um, I, I didn't go in knowing this. I, I didn't go in with um, an ax to grind when it came to stuff like Campbell's racism or Asimov's treatment of women. Um, I knew Hubbard was a real character and, and, a, and a, you know, kind of a basket case. But, you know, and he, even he became more complicated, you know, the more I thought about him. And yeah. so and so the book's attitude towards its subjects is one that kind of came organically from what I discovered in the, the record. And I think that shows. Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. Uh, cause that's certainly, um, an interesting aspect of this, that it is very nuanced. Uh, and, uh, there were a lot of things that I thought, Oh, this is really fascinating and cool. But also as I've thought about, uh, how science fiction is evolving today. Um, actually just, just recently, uh, just had, uh, Cheryl Vint, uh, on the show and we were talking about her new book for, uh, MIT press, uh, around how science fiction, what it's become today and how the diversity of voices and how it continues to be a tool for us to make sense of this, like rapidly changing technological world. Uh, but thinking about like where we're, where we are and where we come from, uh, there's definitely, I think, some some bones to pick, right? And and some things that um, I, I I feel, especially as a as a fan of a lot of science fiction from uh, that era, and as a white male, I feel like ah, well, I got to recognize where that um, particular American white male perspective uh, really dominated the field. Uh, in those early days and really kind of shaped uh, what science fiction was and wasn't in some ways. Um, and so, and, 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 you know, you mentioned a little bit like people were being like, oh, you're we hoping maybe it was a celebration. Uh, what kind of other responses have, have you gotten from people as far as that kind of treatment of the book? Um, I mean, surprisingly, the response from science fiction fans has been mostly very positive. Um, at least from older fans and, and even younger fans. Um, I didn't quite know what to expect. Um, but I think in many cases, these fans are just happy that these writers are still being talked about at all. Um, I think Campbell especially had kind of disappeared from the conversation for a long time. And, you know, he's back in the conversation. And, and, you know, a lot of it is about his racism and about his, you know, I mean, there, there, there are aspects of his personality that are very repellent. Um, but I think that's the price that had to be paid to acknowledge his importance. Right. You can't talk about Campbell in the year 2021 without addressing some of these issues. But at the same time, you know, I think Campbell, who was not afraid of controversy, would be happy that he was still seen as this influential force, which I think is correct. I think I think you can't you know, without him, you take him out of the picture and the history of science fiction is is very different. I don't know if it's better or worse, but, it, you know, it would not be the same without Campbell. And I think he would be pleased that this fact is being acknowledged, even if it forces us to confront certain things that are less comfortable. Um, so I think the fans, you know, have, have responded to that. I think there is a conversation about Campbell's um, influence that is ongoing. And I think we've actually barely begun. I, I think... Um, it's very easy to point to certain things about Campbell that are objectionable uh, to anyone. Any reasonable person would, would look at Campbell and say, you know, these are things we don't support. But at the same time, there are also things that he did that are widely seen as good things, or at least as things that um, 
shaped science fiction as we know it today and have kind of you know come to accept it as that are also kind of uh to me at least um ambiguous in terms of their impact um stuff like uh campbell's assumptions about science and engineering the idea that you know you can solve problems in certain ways, you know, via this figure that was called the competent man who, you know, uses science in the way that a pulp hero would use a gun or, you know, other, you know, more conventional uh, sort of trappings of, of these heroes. You know, I mean, that is central to science fiction or to a lot of science fiction. You know, this, this figure who solves problems through engineering is one that I think a lot of science fiction fans still believe in. And I actually think that that figure needs to be questioned as well. And I think it comes a lot out of Campbell's personal beliefs and, and prejudices about this stuff uh, in ways that are, you know, not entirely recognized. I, I think he single-handedly kind of defined what science fiction is going to be about for a long time. And those assumptions are still there. And I know that a lot of writers and fans push against them in ways that I think are important, but we haven't quite come to terms with the idea that, you know, there is something about Campbell that is, essential to science fiction and and maybe it's not a good thing maybe it's something that needs to be questioned mm -hmm. so there's room to to still continue deconstructing that and and doing some mm -hmm. sense making around that i mean i'm certainly uh you know as far as like what campbell i think was trying to do i re resonate a little bit with in terms of the idea of here's this genre that can encompass so much uh, that can uh, deal with this like massive breadth, uh, really everything in existence, you know, and can uh, hopefully be used as a means to inspire people to to build a better world. I'm certainly interested in that capacity, even if ultimately I'm like, well, the ways I'd like to do that would be through um, exploring, you know, big philosophical questions um, and not necessarily assuming always the answer is the competent man <laughs> and and bringing in more diverse voices uh, into this mix. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, how, how do you see um, other people beginning to uh, or continuing to deconstruct Campbell's uh, influence in science fiction today? Well, I mean, it, it's funny because like science fiction is so huge, right? And, and there's so many different kinds of it um, that, you know, it, it's it's very, you know, it, it's, it can be tricky sometimes to sort of identify and, and define, you know, certain trends. Um, I, I will say, I guess, a couple of things. One is that there is still a Campbellian thread in science fiction that is not really questioned that I think, um, you know, uh, maybe should be. Uh, I, I was thinking about this a lot recently because I reviewed um, Andy Weir's new book, uh, uh, Project Hail Mary, yep, for the I New York just, Times. Just finished that one. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can we can you know talk about that a bit too yeah. because, you know, I mean Andy Weir, I, I like a lot of what he does. I think he is very good at honoring this tradition of hard science fiction that really is Campbellian. I mean, the competent man story, The Martian, is a quintessential competent man story. Right. Project Hail Mary is a you know you know in many ways, the kind of story that Campbell would have loved and, and you know, probably would have published and, and astounding in the late 30s. Um, but, you know, Andy Weir, he, I mean, at least with The Martian and, and uh, this new book, he defines the story in ways that exclude a lot of things that he's not good at. You know, he's very good at the science, the engineering, at sort of this problem solving that is, you know, I, I think a very Campbellian kind of approach to this, to, to this kind of narrative. Um, he is not very good at constructing relationships or 
plausible future societies. Um, and so he sets up stories where you, you, you literally have like one guy by himself. You have one guy by himself on, a, on Mars or in a spaceship, and all he has to do is solve these problems. And whenever the story strays from that thread, you know, when there are flashbacks or cut, cutaways to like other people, it really kind of falls apart. That central story is, is, is pretty solid, you know, because it, it deliberately excludes a lot, a lot of things that hard science fiction isn't always good at talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, that, that's very interesting to me. Like, like Weir has become a huge success because I think people respond to this kind of story. But, you know, it's, it's very hard for me to read these books now, especially after having written Astounding and, and not be very conscious of their limitations because there are mm-hmm. things that they don't want to do or that they aren't able to do that um, he very cleverly avoids, you know, in his most successful work. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's a, to me, it, it's a, a shortcoming. You know, I'm not saying that every story has to do the kind of, you know, um, thing that I'm talking about where you engage with social issues and 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 such. But, um, you know, the 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 hard science fiction approach to the world doesn't always um, provide us with interesting answers or interesting approaches to these problems. And I I think, you know, that in in, in Weir's case, you know, again, decades after Campbell, uh, you know, stopped being active in the field, you know, you can still see his influence there, I think. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, when we were talking, we brought up, you know, the, the, that construct, the, the, that rubric of the comp, uh, the competent man, uh, immediately Andy Weir's work comes to mind <laughs> as still very much embodying, uh, that reality. Uh, so that makes, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, do you, do you see other, like, what, what would you say is maybe someone who's, uh, succeeding in, uh, writing hard science fiction, but also bringing in some of these bigger uh, social aspects. Uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, you know, okay, I, I should caveat this response a bit by saying that I'm actually not as familiar as I would like to be with what's being done at this moment in science okay. fiction. Mm-hmm. My, my my area of expertise is is you know stuff that was going on in you know 1945. Um, I, I will say that to me, I, I mean, I can name individual authors, but but the real the real um, movement here is in the genre as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, science fiction community has been very deliberate about incorporating um, a wider range of voices uh, than it has in the past. I think you see this in the Hugo Awards. You see this, you know, in the stories that get picked up and, you know, that get recommended. Um, and I think people are aware of these issues in a way that they were not, or at least they are, they're openly discussing these issues in a productive way and in a way they were not during Campbell's time. And, you know, it's overdue. I, I think that um, I, I would say this, you know, Campbell could have uh, enabled this conversation in the 60s. You know, th- I mean, think about what was going on in the world during the tail end of his editorship. And, you know, th- these are not new problems. Th- these are, you know, these issues of representation and, and diversity and, and institutional, you know, racism. You know, th- these are all things that were being discussed in 1968. And uh, Campbell chose not to deal with them. You know, he wasn't interested. And um, to me, that's always been, you know, I- I- I'm struck by this because, Campbell loved the idea of science fiction that was about social change. And he, he did not make the effort to expand his demographic of authors and fans in a way that would actually incorporate voices of people who had been impacted by social change in, in the real world, in real time, you know. 
And, yeah. you know, that project, the, the project of trying to diversify the, um, you know, the number of voices you have in science fiction, that was consistent with what Campbell believed. You know, he, if, if he really believes that this is what science fiction is set up to do, and, and it, he, he clearly did, there is a version of Campbell that could have said, instead of, you know, like recruiting the white male engineers who I've been going after in the past, I'm going to look for people that look different than I do, who might actually have interesting perspectives, uh, you know, on, on change that I don't have, that, that, you know, aren't reflected in the magazine as it currently stands. He, he didn't do this, but I think editors and especially writers and fans are doing this right now. And I think the genre is obviously a lot healthier and more interesting as a result. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. It's been, you know, it's been something that I've, I've grown fascinated with uh, being able to experience different uh, perspectives than anything that I uh, might have, even though I'm my, you know, sort of multicultural in my, my own way and having been uh, born and raised in South America and Brazil and, and falling in love with uh, science fiction while uh, young uh, and still very much identifying or living a Brazilian reality. Um, but then moving to America with American parents, you know, kind of getting mm -hmm. away from all of that. Uh, it's been, it's been really fascinating for me to, to step back and like really try to look intentionally for the who's doing really fascinating science fiction that's not white male <laughs> you know mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, and as much as like you know I, I read andy weir's new book and and for the most part enjoyed it and uh but that's not the only kind of science fiction that i want to exist so i definitely relate to what you're saying about how we need to examine i think some of our uh, assumptions about how science fiction can work and what even potentially counts as, as science fiction in some ways, uh, because there's certainly something major to be said about deconstructing where are we as a society, where are we headed and the choices that are being made there. And one of the things I'd like, I, I enjoy seeing discussed in science fiction that I'd like to see more of is economics really, and a, mm -hmm. and a broader understanding of, of that. And, um, doesn't feel like, even though Heinlein uh, kind of got into economics periodically in his stuff, it doesn't feel like that the golden age really was all that interested in diving into that. It uh, seems to steer mostly clear of that. I don't know if he... Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is, um, again, I was th bringing things back to Campbell. And uh, Campbell was not that interested in questioning capitalism. You right. know, he, he loved to like you know, set himself up as this uh, opponent of orthodoxy. And he said, you know, I, I'm here to like question the establishment conventional view of the world, which he did in certain ways, but there, there are certain assumptions he did not question. I mean, there are exceptions, but for the most part, you know, he was conservative, he was a capitalist, you know, he, he basically, you know, uh, did not actively seek out stories that um, tried to envision alternate ways of arranging the world. Um, and yeah, and, and I think you, you do see um, other writers exploring these issues elsewhere, and, and they do come into, you know, some of the stories that Campbell published. But again, a lot of it comes down to what he felt like looking into, that he was powerful enough that he was able to, um, you know, kind of steer writers in certain directions and away from others. Yeah, yeah, which has a pretty interesting influence that he was able to exert there and one mm -hmm. wonders too like what what we may have we we may not even realize we've missed out on <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah but purely a, a, a speculation uh and and on that front 
Um, and I love it that, that, you know, so you, this came about because of your already like embedded interest in analog, which I've uh, also read for years and really enjoy. Uh, actually, re- uh, just a while back, uh, had uh, Frank Wu on talking a bit about He's great. His, yeah, about his story uh, um, in the absence of instructions to the contrary. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a great story. Yeah, yeah. And so... It, it, the idea of analog and its history uh, is, again, something that's really uh, draws me in. Um, do you think there are ways in which, um, I don't know, there's like uh, more to the history of science fiction in terms of non-hard science fiction and, and fantasy that, that uh, a companion book might be worth doing? <laughs> Well, you're sure, you know, the, the only issue is like, I only have so much time. Right. I only have one career and these books take a long time. Um, yeah. You know, these books take a long time to write. Um, I mean, I would love to write a book. Uh, you know, one book I've had in mind for a long time is a book that would kind of take place on the West Coast, uh, you know, during the same period. Because if you look at people like Ray Bradbury, uh, who is not really a, a figure in astounding, um, you know, clearly there's something to be told there. Um, Lee Brackett, uh, even people like Forrest J. Ackerman, you know, it, they had their own community in Los Angeles. And uh, I don't really talk about it because they were not Campbell writers for the most part. Um, and, you know, this this book had to be constrained in certain ways. It couldn't be a history of American science fiction and, you know, in its entirety in the way that I, I approached it because that would have been unpublishable. So I had to pick <laughs> and choose stuff based on, does it relate back to Campbell? And yeah. so someone like Ray Bradbury or even like Arthur C. Clarke, you know, very well-known names from that period, I couldn't really talk about except for, you know, in passing because they were off on their own. They were, they were doing their own thing. There weren't any great stories about them uh, hanging out with Campbell. Um, even someone like A.E. Van Vogt, who I think is a really great writer, who I, I actually admire more than some of the people I, I wrote about here. He was the Campbell writer, but he never really met Campbell until much later. And, uh, and so there was no, again, I, I wanted stories about these writers, you know, in the same room. Yeah. And so th- there, are, there are minor writers who were in the same room as Campbell, who get much more space in this book than they maybe deserve uh, in terms of like a broader picture, you know, history of science fiction, just because of the narrative that I was telling. Right. Anyway, yes. So, so the short answer is that I would love to see other writers tackle similar uh, subjects in the same way. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are dozens of books about science fiction that could be written, you know, along these lines. And, and I really hope someone else does it. Yeah. I, actually, even as you were saying that, I, I can't help but think, uh, hey, Ken Burns, can you make a big series on <laughs> science fiction? That would be I'd awesome. That. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, <laughs> you, know, you never know. It could happen. Um, so, yeah. No, I mean, it's it, there's so much material out there. You know, there's stuff I cut out of the book that I didn't have room I'm for. Sure. You know, the, the original draft was twice the length, you know, wow. what I published. And it was not padded. It was just good stuff that I had to cut. Um, so, again, it, I'm not ruling out the possibility that I could do this again at some point, but it's not. Uh, it's not a light task. Not, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it, currently, it's not on my horizon. Right. Um, so, yeah. No, I, I would much rather see someone else do the same thing. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, that's great. Um, and you know, you mentioned you know the the fact that there's these various communities, and the, and the um, uh, the book kind of touches on sort of those early days too, where there uh, you know it was already kind of a divide between uh, science fiction fandom, and uh, and it's interesting to kind of like 
understand that and and see how that kind of influenced and shaped uh, people like Campbell and and other writers. Um, you know, and watching, you know, you talk about how Asimov's kind of, kind of stuck in the middle of, of these groups and kind of like, oh, what, you know, what do I, where do I fit in in all of this as he's kind of finding his own footing? Um, is there something just about fandom in science fiction that even from the inception means uh, there's a bit of like uh, tribalism and like we kind of split off and like us versus them. Yeah. It's, well, it's funny because one thing I, I kind of try to point out in the book um, is that the, what we think of now as science fiction fandom, it's a tiny piece of the readership of, of astounding, which in itself is a tiny piece of the science fiction market, which in itself is a tiny piece of the, of the pulp magazine market. So we have like millions of readers, thousands of readers in you know, the case of astounding. And then at the center or, or so they see themselves is like a couple of hundred fans. You know, these are the people that are joining and, and founding clubs. They're uh, publishing mimeographed maybe, maybe fanzines. They're the ones whose names kind of stick in the history of science fiction. And naturally, like these people are the obsessive con confrontational type. You know, there, there's a certain type who, you know, mostly you know young men who will carve a place for themselves in the history of science fiction. And there, there are many other fans and readers who we don't remember. But the ones we do talk about now are clearly going to be big personalities, people like Donald Wolheim and, um, you know, the Futurians, Sam Moskowitz. You know, these are people who, yeah, as you say, you know, they, they, they were tribal. They, they love to create controversy. Um, it, it's similar in some ways to what you see online. So, you know, many people go online without causing any kind of conflict at all. But, you know, a small number of people on Reddit or Twitter or whatever, you know, they, the dynamics there are the same as you see in the 30s. You know, the certain kinds of fans tend to react against other fans in some other ways. And one thing that I really enjoyed seeing was these patterns, you know, that repeat themselves. And, you know, the account of sort of like some of these like fan dust ups in New York in 1939, you know, very similar to what you see online today. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the behaviors haven't really changed, but they've been magnified and kind of force multiplied by the Internet, by, by other, you know, the resources they have available these days. Which is in itself like uh, living out science fiction. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> that we, oh, now we have this instant communication. I can just get on my phone and, and angry mm -hmm. tweet someone who disagrees with me about right. my opinion of Andy Weir's new book or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, no, that is fascinating. Uh, and, and then there's also the aspect of, I, I just can't, can't help but wonder, was it inevitable in this early stage that uh, something like Scientology would kind of springboard out of science fiction to some degree? Or is that just kind of a weird coincidence? No, I think it's deeply entwined. Um, and again, you take Campbell out of the picture, who knows? Maybe it'd be a little bit different. But, you know, uh, Dynodics, which was the uh, therapy that Campbell and Hubbard developed together, is an expression of Campbell in the same way that hard science fiction was an expression of Campbell. Um, you know, Campbell believed in, as I said before, you know, solving problems through engineering. And he was obsessed by the idea of uh, kind of nurturing a real discovery, you know, within the magazine that would have a, an impact on the real world. And, you know, you see this impulse, you know, during the war, you know, he really thinks he can contribute to the war effort by coming up with these gadgets and ideas, none of which really pan out. 
And then after the war, you know, he, he can't run the Manhattan Project. He doesn't have a lot of resources, you know, in, in that way. But, you know, to, to you know, develop a new science of the mind, you just need two people in a quiet room. And Campbell became obsessed by the idea that the way to save the world from the bomb was to develop the science of the mind that would allow us to forestall some of the human impulses that might lead to World War III. And that's where it comes from. I mean, I mean, so that impulse, you know, that that um, line of thinking, it's very similar to the line of thinking that produced these classic stories. You know, the, the, this idea of science as a way to solve problems. And, and what Hubbard and Campbell said, what, said, you know, was let's apply the same approach to the brain. And we're going to come up with a system that has rules that you follow and you get this result in the same way you would, you know, in a, like a laboratory experiment. So Dianetics itself is absolutely an expression of science fiction under Campbell's editorship. And, um, you know, the, that, that, that to me is like one of the core points of this book is that science fiction produces, you know, the three laws of robotics, but it also produces Scientology, you know? And so that to me says that those, those values are at best ethically neutral and they can be turned in all kinds of directions that you, you can't expect. That makes sense. I think that's a, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, because that's one of the things I guess I found fascinating and frustrating at the same time. Because on the one hand, I really appreciate the impulse of how are we going to respond to this cataclysmic creation, the, the atomic bomb, and 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 respond to the aftermath of World War One and Two, um, and, and the idea of like, okay, well, we need to address human mind. Okay, I get that. I'm aboard. But then what follows? You know, it just in spite of Campbell's uh, stated, you know, desire to use science in these ways, what sci what follows seems patently unscientific in so many ways, mm -hmm. and based on confirmation bias, not open for peer review, and and, and therefore not in, in really any significant sense scientific. Um, and I, I guess I, that's where it's just as fascinating to me, just that the level of like how big that blind spot is mm -hmm. uh, yeah. for Campbell. <laughs> and well, and yeah, no, I mean, one thing that I, I talk about is, and I don't say this in so many words in the book, but you know, the idea of the competent man and kind of the heroic model of uh, narrative science fiction kind of poisoned Campbell's approach to science. You know, he was convinced that he was the main character in his life story. And that, you know, any discovery that, you know, was made, he would personally shepherd into being. And so, you know, he became obsessed by these weird ideas like, you know, I mean, Dianetics, obviously, later psionics, psychic powers and these like weird machines he built, you know, that kind of did weird stuff that no one could replicate. Um, you know, and, and it comes out of this idea that he was going to be the one to um, kind of take the lead. And, you know, it was not a collaborative process. I mean, he, he kind of spoke of it as though it were this collaboration between him and the writers and the fans. But, you know, it was all about him in the end. You know, he wanted that recognition. He wanted that glory. Um, and that's equally true of Hubbard, you know, probably even more so. And, and like, I think that impulse is the thing that kind of you can trace back and say, this is where they went wrong. You know, this idea that it has to be driven by us personally um, is, is it's very easy to take that um, inclination into really strange directions if it's not checked. Yeah, yeah. And I think that speaks to the distinctly Western uh, white male individualistic uh 
you know, influence that that is felt in science fiction, I think, at that point. Because it's interesting that it is, you know, focused on the competent man, not the, the competent species <laughs> or the competent right. community, uh, which is yeah. in itself telling. Yeah. No, I mean, a big a big theme of the book is, you know, there, there are certain conventions that we embrace in fiction that work because we're telling stories. Right. So the competent man, the hero, you know, who solves problems. This is a great framework for a science fiction story. Uh, and Campbell certainly, Hubbard certainly, Asimov and Heinlein to a lesser extent, you know, they, they kind of confused that narrative model with the real world. You know, and they said, this is how my life is going to be. This is how, you know, things actually do work. And I, I'm not sure that's true. And and I think that um, a lot of the tragedy of Campbell's life was his attempt to become the competent man that he had written about and had edited and published, um, which in practice, it comes at a cost. It, it can come at a huge personal cost. And, and I think Campbell's life really expresses that. Yeah, yeah, I definitely see that for sure. Um, now, Alec, you also write science fiction, as you mentioned, uh, and I, I'm actually like halfway through right now. I haven't got a chance to quite finish Syndromes yet, but your collection of short stories is really fantastic. Thanks. Uh, enjoying it very much so far. Um, and so, so how does uh, all of this sort of this background in your, your, your own sort of vested interest in analog, um, how do you personally sort of wrestle with all of that in your own writing? Well, one thing I want to kind of underline, because maybe it's not clear from what I've said before, is that I love hard science fiction. You know, I, I, I talk about its limitations, but, you know, they're kind of self-imposed. I, I think hard science fiction, when practiced in the highest you know, sense, is this wonderful game. You're saying we're going to tell these stories that are fantastic and surprising and interesting, and we're going to play by the rules. We're going to say certain things are possible. We're going to try to honor the laws of physics and of known science as much as we can. And then what can we construct within that these constraints and to me that's so fun to me that is a wonderful game that i love playing and, and you know the stories i write they usually come out of um you know like an actual scientific fact or you know a backdrop that i find interesting and i'm like how can i tell a story that is unexpected that is still accurate or at least isn't accurate in ways that are you know outside the preview of analog magazine right um and so yeah no i i I, I do it because I enjoy it. And, you know, someone like Andy Weir, I, I respect what he does in terms of saying, you know, I'm going to calculate exactly how you would do this complicated space maneuver. And, and I, I like it. You know, it, it's, it's really fun. And I, and I admire the effort that goes into it because I've done the same thing. I'm like, how do I make this story consistent with the facts as I know them? Um, but I also like the idea that hard science fiction, you can start from that factual basis and then kind of go into these weird emotional areas that uh, other kinds of science fiction, you know, um, I'm going to say that you can't do them, but, you know, I think hard science fiction is really good at evoking uh, scale, um, awe, you know, a sense of wonder, the uncanny, you know, the sense the world is different than what we actually think it is. You know, these things to me are what I tried to go for, you know, and the stuff I read and, and to some extent in, in what I write. And I think hard science fiction actually gives people a set of tools that you can use to tell these kinds of stories that do have this kind of um, singular emotional impact that you, you get when you try to play by those rules. 
Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and so you, with the, the short stories you've been writing, and you've written some novels, uh, I believe, as well. Um, how, what, what has been sort of, I guess, for you, the most rewarding aspect of, of getting to do that side of it, of being a creator? I mean, there's nothing like it. I, I, you know, I'm still delighted when I see something I've written in print. Um, a, a big reason why I uh, write for Analog is that it's one of the last print magazines available. Um, you know, and I, I know that there are other online magazines that have done great work and in some ways are more visible to people. Um, but to me, there's nothing like seeing us, you know, my name on the printed page. So there's that, you know, there's that satisfaction. There's the satisfaction of being part of this tradition. You know, I mean, Analog, as I know firsthand, you know, it's this 90 year old magazine that um, has a huge history. And I frankly relate more to 1930s pulp writers than I, I, I do in some ways to, you know, writers of my own generation. I like seeing myself as a part of that continuity, you know, this, this, uh, you know, the succession of um, writers who publish stories like this. Um, so, and, but, you know, at the same time, trying to push it into directions that were influenced by the things that I enjoyed growing up. Um, you know, my biggest science fiction touchstone was the X-Files. And, you know, it was, it was because I was 12 years old or whatever, you know, when that show premiered and it, it got to me in ways that nothing else has since. And so a lot of my early stories, especially are homages to that show. Um, and, you know, a big part of the fun for me was like, how can I write an X-Files story that Analog will publish, you know, that is actually scientifically grounded. And so, you know, I, I like to say that, you know, in my, my stories, these are X-Files in which, uh, you know, Agent Scully is actually right. You know, that there is a rational explanation. It starts <laughs> yes. out looking really weird and kind of uncanny and, and paranormal, but then actually, no, it's actually just a reflection of some scientific facts we haven't you know, taken into account. So, so that what, what I call that game to me is, is by far the most um, satisfying thing about writing stories like this. That's great. I, I had actually, I was even going to ask about that because, you know, uh, I felt that influence, uh, particularly, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Coatro. Uh, Coataro? Coataro. Coataro. Yes. Yeah. Um, that story, I was very much, this is an episode of the X-Files. Like, this is like yeah, a Monster I mean, of the Week episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, a lot of these stories had uh, that, that, you know, exactly. That, that's, that's what I'm thinking of in the back of my mind. You know, I'm trying to recreate the feeling I had watching some of those really classic episodes, you know, back in the early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. It was, it was great. And it was, yeah, like you said, it's, uh, it's the, the twist is the, the science actually explains it there, mm -hmm. um, which is satisfying. It's really fascinating. And yet it's bewildering and bizarre uh, in, in its yeah, own and, way. And, 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 you know, and the combination of emotions or reactions is one that I think only comes out of this kind of story. You know, right. it has to be, you know, to, to me, like the idea that it's factually based is super interesting. And, and, and fun and kind of weird in a way that I wouldn't uh, be able to achieve if I had, you know, if, if I weren't operating within those rules. Right. Yeah. And it's sort of a reminder that sometimes reality can be a little stranger than fiction. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that's, that's great. That's fascinating. And um, so those, uh, those stories in uh, syndromes that were originally published in analog, I take it? Every single one. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. Uh, what do you have uh, going on these days? What are you working on next? So on the nonfiction side, my big uh, project uh, for the past couple of years has been a biography of um, a man named Buckminster Fuller. 
who was um, the architectural designer best known for geodesic structures like domes. Um, but he was a futurist, you know, and he was probably the most famous futurist in America during his lifetime. So he, he died in 1983 and he was, he was, you know, so influential and famous during his lifetime. It can be kind of hard to grasp this now because he's kind of faded from the conversation a bit, but he was a big influence on me. And, you know, he definitely had this vision of technology, this kind of transformative vision of technology that became really influential in Silicon Valley. You see it in startup culture today. So I kind of wanted to like tell his story. There hasn't really been a good biography of Fuller that covered his entire career. And, you know, and it kind of tees out some of these same issues that I, I talked about in Astounding. You know, we have this idea or some of us have this idea that the best way to solve social problems is through design. And the Fuller embodied that assumption. And, you know, I, I kind of question it now in a way that I probably did not when I was a teenager reading Fuller's work for the first time. But I still respect him. He's still a very interesting guy who, you know, is much more complicated than his sort of uh, otherworldly persona would, would indicate. So, you know, in some ways, it's similar to astounding. I, I take someone I admire and tear him apart, you know, in, in ways that, I would only do if I if I took him seriously and right. hopefully can persuade other readers to do the same. Well, it seems like that's an important process in our own development uh, as a society is if we take the time to, one, take these people seriously, but second, actually try to grow beyond them. And I think that has to happen through that, that process of questioning because we only improve. I mean, that's a scientific process, right? We look at, well, mm. here's how here's where Newtonian physics stops working, right? Mm. It doesn't explain these other things. Well, what's wrong with Newtonian physics? Well, let's figure that out. And, you know, and then we end up with relativity. Well, then here's mm -hmm. where relativity breaks down. We end up with quantum physics and now they don't mesh. So what are we going to do? Uh, so it seems like an important part of the science fiction, even conversation is to evaluate and say, okay, these are the good things, but here's how we also kind of like miss the mark. How can right. we improve? Yeah. I mean, if there's a pattern and, you know, I'm basing this on two books, so it's not really a pattern. But, um, you know, one, one thing I've done is I've, I've, I've taken on subjects where previous books on, you know, about these these people, they've been very Spanish. All right. And I'm saying that's, that's a bad thing. But, you know, the, the majority of biographies of science fiction writers that are published are by fans, mm -hmm. which makes sense because no yep. one else is going to take the time it takes to write a book like this if they don't care deeply about the subject. But, you know, often they are not very critical. You know, they're kind of credulous and you get this idealized picture of a person that, you know, I mean, I, at my at this stage in my life, I, I question that, you know, because mm -hmm. no one is that perfect. No one is that visionary without there being, you know, like consequences. And same thing with Fuller. You know, most of the previous books on the subject, at least for popular readers, are incredibly idealized. You know, they, they kind of paint him as this benevolent grandfather figure who just went around the world doing genius things because he was a genius. And to me, that's not useful. It's not it doesn't really lead anywhere. I, I want to know how he did them and why. And, you know, when you start looking at those things, you start to see, oh, you know, he actually did things for practical reasons because he had objectives that were not simply to make the world a better place. Um, same thing with these writers, you know, they they did things to advance their own goals and to, you know, um, satisfy needs that um, don't um, easily fit within that picture of uh, genius as we think about it. But, you know, to me, it's much more interesting to, you know, ask that harder second question about, you know, why and how these things were done. 
Makes sense. That's great. Yeah, it sounds like a fascinating book in its own right. Uh, I'll be uh, keeping my my eyes out for that. Any projected uh, release date at this point, Not, or still yeah, too yeah. early? No, currently it's it's slated for one year from today, essentially. Like I don't know the exact date, but probably May of next year. So the book is essentially finished, um, but there's a lot of editorial stuff that has to happen first. So I'm I'm you know thinking May of 2022, but we'll see. Excellent. Well, I look forward to checking that out because just that idea, you know, as a science fiction fan, there's also just the, the aspect of uh, wanting to look to the future uh, in, in practical ways, too. So uh, yeah. I'll be very curious to to learn from from your writing in that respect as well. Uh, any fiction you're working on as well? Um, I, I took a break from writing short fiction uh, for the period that it took to write this fuller biography because it was a massive project oh, that sure. I don't think I could have pulled off in two and a half years without really, you know, excluding everything else um, until I, I was finished. Um, I do have an idea for a novel that I don't want to get into too much because it's not a done deal. Oh, I still sure. have to write a proposal and, and like kind of find a publisher. But it would kind of return to some of the stuff we've been talking about. It would be my first science fiction novel because um, I've written three novels, but they are suspense fiction. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that was kind of an interesting byway. But, you know, I, I would love to return to science fiction um, and at like a longer you know, length. And uh, the one the idea that I have would, would build directly on the period that I um, describe an astounding on some of the, the stories that I liked that I think deserve more recognition. Um, you know, and kind of following up on some clues that I, I uncovered about interesting directions that you could take, uh, you know, science fiction in that haven't been explored. Wow, that sounds great. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense, too, to take that break to, I mean, that's, you know, any kind of biography is going to be a pretty big undertaking, so... That, yeah that's... yeah i've done two so far i think i'm maybe done for now um, yeah, right. because you're right it doesn't leave a lot of room for other stuff that's yeah, a pretty big undertaking that makes sense as somebody who uh i haven't written any biographies or anything like that but i do uh quite a bit of documentary video work mm -hmm. uh so familiar with the the digging and the interviewing and the mm -hmm. uh amount of time that that can be sunk into that level of uh, just trying to uncover the history, right? Mm -hmm. So makes makes perfect sense. Um, you know, one of the things that I often love to ask guests is what recommendations they have. Like, what has spoken to you recently? What's science fiction that you wish more people were reading or watching uh, or listening to? Uh, I don't know if you have anything that comes to mind. Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I mean, I've been gradually kind of edging my way back into um, reading more science fiction that's being published right now, because, you know, it, it, I just said, like, writing Astounding, it was, um, again, two and a half years plus of work where, you know, just reading all these old stories, you know, took most of my time. And, and so I was kind of sidelined a bit from... Um, you know, reading uh, current stuff, but actually, I mean, I mean, can I recommend some older stories? Absolutely, you know, I, I, absolutely. I, okay, good. Yeah, because mm -hmm. there are writers wh whose work, um, you know, you, you can't take for granted anymore that people have read them. Even some right. of the Heinlein, you know, I mean, uh, I, I think there are older science fiction fans who would be really chagrined to realize this, but you know, like a lot of uh, younger readers haven't read um, Heinlein, mm -hmm. and they have a certain idea of, of who he was um, that it, you know isn't entirely accurate because he. 
again, like he was a complicated person who wrote for a long time and you know went through many different stages, you know, and there are probably four or five different Heinleins, uh, you know, that um, you could talk about. And, and the one that I think has become the most conical Heinlein, you know, this is one phase out of many. So, you know, for example, um, I'd never read any of Heinlein's short fiction um, really until I, I tackled this book. And, uh, you know, there's a collection called The Past Through Tomorrow, which uh, collects his future history stories that I loved. You know, it is so, um, I mean, it's so accomplished given the, you know, way in which it was written, you know, kind of under pressure for these these pulps. But, you know, just a, a huge range of ideas and settings and tones, all of which is unified. But, you know, I mean, the highlight of, of like the late 30s, early 40s to me is, you know, uh, someone who could do almost anything. You know, he he tackled fantasy. He tackled hard science fiction with lots of you know great sort of engineering ideas. He could do social change stories. He could do parodies. He could do you know short funny stories. He could he could do it all. Um, so you know, I, I definitely recommend Heinlein, um, especially that collection to people. Mm. Um, and I mentioned Van Vogt. Uh, A. Van Vogt is someone who is not read as much as uh, you know he should be, in part because he's a weirdo. He, he's a very strange writer, and I think you have to kind of overcome a certain amount of um, period uh, prose to get into Van Vogt. But you read some of his stuff. Um, there's a novel called The World of Null A that I, I talk about a lot. That you know, without him, you wouldn't have Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dick mm-hmm. talks about. Ben Vogt as an influence and, you know, this sense of a incomprehensible reality that you're kind of thrust into where there may be rules, but, you know, it's unclear if even the writer understands what the rules are, you know, this kind of uncanny disorienting uh, fiction to me gets at something very fundamental about how the world works that someone like Heinlein does not. You know, someone like Heinlein is fundamentally rational. And I think, you know, the world is not or, you know, aspects of human life, at least, are not rational. And I think Van Vogt was maybe the best of that crop of writers at getting at that uh, kind of uh, somewhat disturbing realization, which, you know, maybe Campbell, you know, Campbell loved Van Vogt. It was not a Campbellian uh uh, kind of point of view where, you know, it wasn't a chameleon perspective because it did say that maybe there are no answers. Maybe there are things that we can't resolve through engineering and through being rational beings. So again, uh, Van Vogt as like a writer who I always say is like at once like the most primitive and the most advanced science fiction writer, you know, of that time is someone I, I recommend pretty highly. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. The, I haven't read a lot of Van Vogt, but what I have read is, uh, yeah, I, can definitely see that because it's been very enjoyable, um, you know. And one of, one of the things is like kind of going back into astounding just a little bit, and the idea. And I and it was funny because I, I asked uh, Professor uh, Cheryl Vint about this too when she was on. Uh, is the is that question of you know it's labeled the golden age of science fiction, um, and. Is it fair to, to say the golden age, I guess, uh, still in light of maybe the some of the nuances that we've discussed and in light of, you know, because in some ways I look around and I see all these diverse voices writing and creating uh, some really remarkable work today. Um, and, and part of me feels a little like, I don't know, is that the golden age or right. are we experiencing something special right now? I, I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, no, I think I think to me, golden age uh, 
is a temporal marker. It's a convenient, uh, you know, label for a period, which I use because that's the label that people have have agreed on. And by people, I mean mostly white male fans who came of, came of age during that period. You know, so so one reason why we th- talk about these stories is that the writers who were fans and authors during that period became really famous later on, and and they were kind of in a position to shape the history of science fiction retroactively. You know, so clearly the stuff you read when you were 12 or that you were writing when you were 20, you know, seems special to you in ways that, you know, the earlier, the later stuff does not. So, you know, I think it's a golden age in that in the same sense that, you know, we talk about golden age comics. I don't don't think anyone would argue that those comics are superior to the ones that followed. And, and you know, a lot of them seem pretty crude, Um, but, you know, they, they were important. And I, I and I do agree that this period did stuff that had not been done before that uh, was crucial to the way science fiction evolved. And again, maybe it, it could have gone differently. Maybe it'd be better or worse if you know these things hadn't happened. But there's no way to understand kind of the main line of American science fiction without looking at um, what Campbell and these writers were doing. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, where can folks check out more of your work i'd love you know love to encourage people to check out syndrome check out uh, astounding and just kind of keep an eye out and connect with you where can people do that well so i do have a blog that has been inactive for a while um but uh so it's nevalali.com um and if you go there you will see that um for a long time i wrote many many essays on science fiction um that cover things that astounding does not cover so obviously i would prefer that people just buy the book because uh, that's kind of my my core you know thesis on science fiction but you know there's a lot of stuff that i didn't have room for and in particular you know i didn't have a lot of room to talk about the stories uh, you know people pointed this as like a shortcoming in the book and i agree you know i think that the book had another 200 pages i would have loved to have talked about uh, you know more of these stories in depth um but you know there, there were certain constraints and publishing a book like this. So that stuff got cut, but I, I was able to preserve and repurpose some of that material on the blog. So if you want to read more about some of the stories, about some of these interesting byways that I explored and didn't have room to d- discuss, uh, you know, I would I'd recommend that people check that out. Excellent. Sounds great. Uh, thank you so much, Alec, for uh, taking time to chat with me and kind of uh, let me pick your brain about these things. Uh, you know, I definitely hope more people will continue to check out uh, both Syndromes and Astounding, uh, both highly worthwhile from my perspective. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I look forward to seeing what you what you do next. And maybe sometime here I'll have to have you back on and uh, we'll just chat about uh, some of your fiction if you're up for that. I would love that. Yeah, anytime. Seriously. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate you uh, doing this. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Alec Nevla Lee. Uh, and I really uh, am enjoying Syndromes, uh, which I, as I mentioned, I'm halfway through. And I definitely highly recommend you check out Astounding. Uh, it is a fascinating book. And, um, you know, you might expect a uh, biography of uh, people to potentially be dry, but it's anything but. It's actually so compelling and so engaging and so enlightening. Uh, it is truly a human uh, tale and shines a lot of light onto 
how science fiction came about and uh, why it is the way it is today. So I encourage you to check that out. And uh, if you also would like to check out any of my stuff, I certainly appreciate that. That's at michaelwhistler.com. And uh, I'll pop some links uh, for Alex content as well uh, below in the description. And I just encourage you to take a look at that. And uh, also encourage you to subscribe if you're not already subscribed to the podcast. Uh, if you are an Apple podcast or anywhere where you uh, can rate it, uh, give a thumbs up, anything like that. Those are really huge um, boosts for the podcast, really helpful uh, for me. And uh, please recommend it to friends. Uh, that's, you know, uh, certainly a big way in which these things spread. So if you've got uh, really nerdy friends uh, that also would love to learn about Alec Neville Lee's uh, work and uh, read Astounding or just uh, check out this episode, please pass it along to them. Uh, that would mean the world to me. As I hinted uh, in this episode, I did just finish Andy Weir's new book, Project Hail Mary. I am going to be talking about that in the next episode. Uh, so be kind of unpacking my thoughts, my reactions uh, to uh, the book and uh, some of the interesting themes that came up from my perspective. And uh, so I encourage you to come back next time and check out my thoughts on Project Hail Mary. In the meantime, uh, please take care of yourself and each other out there. Be safe. Continue to read uh, and listen to uh, or even create good science fiction and um, continue to ask those big questions. All right, we'll see you soon.